Well, uh, we are finishing our series through 1 Timothy, and uh, last week we looked at the call for us to live godly lives of contentment with the warning to those who desire to become rich, for those of us who would overwork, those of us who would have selfish ambition to become rich and wealthy and successful in this world. There were some strong warnings for us. Well, this week we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's warnings and instructions for those who are rich and how we should steward over our possessions. And so uh, Paul specifically addresses the rich. I have a word for us uh, regarding that. And if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and sufficient word. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. Amen. Well, legend has it that back in 1923, a meeting of some of America's wealthiest and most powerful men took place at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. Attending the meeting were the following nine men. I'm only going to name one because there's only one name that you would recognize. was the president of America's largest steel company, Charles Schwab. He came after uh, Carnegie. Also, there was the president of America's largest utility company, the president of America's largest gas company, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, the nation's greatest wheat speculator, the nation's greatest speculator on Wall Street, the head of the world's greatest monopoly at the time, and monopoly, not the game. It's this this guy, he had the monopoly on the world's match production and sales. And back in the 20s, there are no lighters, there's no you know, technology. Literally everyone was cooking and using matches for everything, and he had the monopoly on that on top of other financial interests. The sky was loaded. And then lastly, a member of President Harding's cabinet. So these nine men gathered together in Chicago. It was said that the meeting was both a celebration of their success as well as an opportunity to plan their future exploits and dominance. These were the captains of their respective industries and some of the most successful businessmen of their era. But how did things turn out for these distinguished gentlemen? Well, if you know anything about the 20s, following that, the Great Depression hit. And within 25 years, all of these great men met a horrific end to their careers and some even to their lives. Most became penniless and bankrupt. One ended up in an insane asylum, lost his mind. Two were given prison sentences. Uh, The guy who was in President Harding's cabinet got a pardon. And uh, yeah, thank you. And three tragically took their own lives. Three tragically took their own lives. If we consider their plight and their story, if there's one thing to learn from their example, it is that wealth is fleeting and that we should not set our hopes on the uncertainty 
of riches, no matter how great and grand and significant they may seem. Our sermon today is a continuation of Paul's instruction to us on a biblical view of money and possessions. And two words that kind of summarize Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy are contentment and generosity. That the Christian attitude, the Christian posture, the Christian behavior when it comes towards money and our earthly, worldly possessions should be one of contentment and one of generosity. Last week, we took a look at contentment, and this week, we're going to be focusing on generosity. And as we unpack our text, I want to see three things. I want us to see three things. First, the danger of wealth, the danger of riches. Second, the duties for the wealthy. What are the obligations? What, what, what does God call us to do? How does he call us to live and behave if he has gifted us the privilege of being wealthy and rich? And finally, the way to true wealth, the way to true wealth. So first, the dangers of wealth. Second, the duties for the wealthy. And lastly, the way to true wealth. In verses 17 to 19, Paul addresses the wealthy and the rich in the church. Let's look at verse 17 again. This is what he writes. As for the rich in the present age, and I love that qualification, for this earthly age, for those who are successful, for those who are rich on this earth in this time, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I know that many of us may not consider ourselves rich or wealthy, especially the college students who are still living on meal plans, right? Like, you know, I'm not wealthy, I'm not rich, I'm not yet that successful, Um, so I guess this sermon doesn't really apply to me. Well, Chris Rock famously said, Shaq is rich, but the guy who writes Shaq's checks, that guy is wealthy, right? That guy is wealthy. Well, most of us probably can't relate to either. We're not going to see Shaq money and definitely not Jerry Buss family money. But the reality is that here in America, we do live in the most affluent society, in the most affluent culture in the history of the world. In our pockets, we have smartphones, and some of you are on them, right? I see the blue glow on your faces, (laughs) right? We have smartphones that cost hundreds of dollars, college students especially, We drive cars that cost thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. We purchase food, clothing, and basic needs without second thought. All the while, statistics, they tell us that an estimate of 3 billion people around the world, they survive on less than $2.50 a day. Half of the world's population lives in poverty. $2.50 a day, that adds up to $900 a year. There are many of you here that spend more on your car payment, your insurance, and gas a month than half the world spends on themselves to survive in a year. So yes, we are not Shaq and bus family wealthy, but relatively speaking, we are rich and we are wealthy. And the reality is that most of those people who are living in poverty on $2.50 a day they would gladly trade places with you. They would gladly trade places with you. So this message is for all of us. So what does Paul say to us? What does he say to the rich? He gives two warnings in verse 17. Not to be haughty and not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. To be haughty, it's a kind of an older word, but it simply means to be prideful. 
And this is a very natural temptation for those who become rich and wealthy and successful to take pride in ourselves. So many of us believe that our success, whether it's financial or whether it is in education, right? You believe that your success is the result of your hard work, your discipline, your giftedness. But I want to tell you today that that is only a half-truth. That is but a half-truth. Can you honestly say that you are successful because you work harder than the migrant worker in Latin America? That that's why that person's poor and living on $2 a day and you are living successfully, comfortably here in the U.S. because you just work harder than them? Can you honestly say that you are where you are in life because you are naturally more gifted and more intelligent than the factory worker in Southeast Asia? That it's because of your gifts. It's because of your abilities. It's because of your diligence. You are here and they are there. The answer is no. The answer is no. What sets America apart, what sets us apart is not our superiority. It's our opportunity. It is our opportunity. The reality is that when we were born in America or when we came to America fresh off the boat, right, with families and the opportunities that we were afforded, we all hit the jackpot. We all did. And it doesn't mean everything comes easily to us. We do have to work hard. We do have to be disciplined, right? We do have to exercise our gifts. But it does mean that many of us started out in life with an unbelievable amount of privilege, opportunities not afforded to the majority of this world. So let us be humble. Let us not be proud. Because when we are prideful, in ourselves, prideful in our successes, prideful in our riches. We are tempted to believe in our own superiority, that we actually deserve all of this, that we have earned all of this. We are tempted to believe that we actually don't need God's grace. We don't need his provision. We don't depend on him. We don't trust in him. We trust in ourselves. And there's great danger in that. And Paul's warning us of that kind of life, that attitude, that heart. The second thing that Paul warns us of is not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Just as we are warned not to set our, our pride in our riches, so many of us in the church, we buy into the lie that money equals security. So much so that people marry for money. So much so that we take jobs we absolutely hate for money and for security. We choose misery and money for the sake of security, right? That's how much money controls us, right? That's how much we crave security and this kind of earthly power. John Stott aptly, aptly states, though, many people have gone to sleep rich and woken up poor. Many people have gone to sleep rich and woken up poor. If you put your security in money, it is a poor and weak security. People have lost everything as a result of natural disaster or financial crisis or simply the loss of employment. You get a pink slip. You didn't prepare for it. You weren't ready for it. And you've lost everything. Proverbs 23, verse 4 to 5 warns us, Do not toil 
to acquire wealth. And toiling doesn't mean working. It means this endless, ceaseless striving with all that you have. Do not go after that with all that you have to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. No one to stop. No one to pump the brakes. No one to throttle back and not to give all of yourself in pursuit of wealth. Why? When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards the heavens. I love that imagery. The moment you fix your eyes on wealth, the moment you think you've landed upon it, the moment you think you have it and you're secure, it sprouts wings like an eagle and flies away towards heaven. If any of us understand the uncertainty of riches, it should be our generation. It really should be our generation. We saw the internet bubble burst in 2000. We saw the housing bubble bust in 2008. Many of us, our parents, our families, people that we are close to, we saw people lose jobs, lose homes, see businesses collapse and fail. My own uncle had a nervous breakdown and nearly had a a stroke after losing so much of his wealth in the stock market. The Bible was right. The Bible was right. The author of Proverbs was right. That in those moments, in those collapses, we saw wealth fly away like an eagle towards heaven. Church, that's the warning for us. Do not put your hope in the uncertainty of riches. So what should we do? Well, verse 17 ends with this great reminder. But, okay, don't hope in the uncertainty of riches, but... Hope in God who richly provides everything for us to enjoy. There is so much strength. There is so much truth for us here. You and I, we are called to hope in God and to believe that he is a provider and he gives us everything for us to enjoy. You see, church, too many of us live in the false dichotomy, reducing God to the Lord of the spiritual realm and believing that he is absent and distant in the physical realm, okay? Is that your God? Is that your Christianity and spirituality? That when you need the forgiveness of sins, you go to God. When you need your daily bread, you go to work, right? Is that you? Is that you? We live in this false dichotomy thinking God only offers us these spiritual gifts and does no earthly good for us. We don't see him as a financial provider for our families. We are the financial providers for our families. The reality is this, though. God is a God who provides everything that we have. Everything that we have comes from his hand. Your job, your education, your relationships, your health, your children, your family, it is all a result from the hand of God the gifting of God. And here's the good news, okay? God gives it to you as a gift to enjoy, okay? Your job, your wealth, your finances, right? your resources, God gives that to you as a gift and he wants you to enjoy it. It's in the scriptures. Our God is not a killjoy. He doesn't want you to feel guilty for being wealthy. You don't have to, I know I started off with that $2.50 a day thing. Like, I'm not trying to guilt trip you over that. I'm just sharing the reality of, of where we are in our privilege, right? In our blessedness, in our wealth, okay? 
God doesn't want you to feel guilty for that. No, but he does want you to recognize that it's a gift from him, that it's, a not, it's not simply the result of your work, not a result of your superiority or your worth. All that you and I have is a gift from him, and we should use it all for his glory and for our joy. Brothers and sisters, the real question is this. When you think about your money, when you think about your estates and your possessions, what is your perspective? Are you the owner or are you the steward? Okay. Are you the owner or are you the steward? Is it yours or is it God's? You see, ownership says it's mine. I've earned it. I've paid for it. It's mine. Stewardship says it is God's and I am simply the manager. It may be under my care. It may be under my responsibility, but it all belongs to him. Do you know when we do baptism class for parents who want to have their infants baptized, their parents affirm this truth that though these children came from their loins and the blood of their blood and flesh of their flesh, though they are their children, ultimately they know they are God's children. And when we do infant baptism, it is a reminder to this church, to this family, that we are ultimately, and most importantly, children of God, not earthly children right, of flesh. So are you an owner or are you a steward? Think about your tithe, okay? For those of you who give offerings to the church, is your tithe giving 10% of your income, your income, you're giving God 10%, and then you keep the rest for yourself to do as you please? Or is your tithe giving 10% of what already belongs to God? 10% of, of something that all belongs to God. You see, church stewardship is seeing 100% of what you have as belonging to God. 100% of what you have belonging to God. Not just 10%, you give to God, and the 90%, this is mine, and I gotta pay my bills and do my thing. No, it all belongs to God, and I am managing it for his glory. I love what Ligon Duncan says about stewardship. I think the quote's gonna go up on the screen. Indeed, throughout the scriptures, stewardship is not just what we give to the church, but the way we handle everything God has given to us. Stewardship is a lordship issue. Okay? Stewardship is a lordship issue. The way we view and handle money, it is an index of your heart. Is he lord? Or are you lord? Are you lord of your possessions? Lord of your household, right? Lord of your finances, and then you just choose to give some to the church and give some to charity and give some to your kids and whatever it might be? Like, is that, is that under your lordship? Or is, it, or is that under the Lord's, Jesus's? In First Chronicles 29, we have the story of King David. And King David is collecting an offering from Israel to build the temple he wanted to. He wanted to build a house for the Lord. He felt guilty that he was living in this beautiful, fantastic palace. And he says, I want to build a house for you, Lord. But God said, no, you have shed too much blood. It's not going to be you to build the temple. Rather, your son Solomon is going to build the temple. And so David understood that. And so he did the next best thing. And he collected offerings from Israel to build the temple. And this is David's prayer as he's praying over the offering that has been collected for the temple, 1 Chronicles 29. But who am I 
And what is my people that we should be able to the, uh, able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. You see, that's stewardship. God, it has all come from you, and from your own we are giving back to you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name, it comes from your hand and is all your own. Church, that is stewardship. That is stewardship. That's God's heart, right? That's God's heart for us. That's what he wants us to bring. When we give our tithes to the Lord, we have to say, Lord, it is all yours. Would you take this portion and use it for your glory. Versus saying, you know, Sunday worship is kind of church tax time and time to cut a check and, oh my gosh, here we go. I could really use this for something in my own uh, budget. Church, we are called to be humble and grateful stewards of money that, that really is not our own. It's God's. The joy and the blessedness is that he has given it to us to manage to oversee, right? Well, what are the duties then of the wealthy? The warnings to the wealthy, right? The warnings to the rich are pride, right? And hoping in the uncertainty of riches, okay? What are then the duties? In verse 18, Paul continues his exhortation to the rich. And he not only warns them of pride and misplaced hope, he gives them positive instructions on how the wealthy should conduct themselves as stewards over their riches. Let's go back to verse 18, This is what he says. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Okay, To be generous and ready to share. Two clear instructions are given to the wealthy. I know it sounded like four, but it's basically two. First is this, do good. Second, be generous. Okay, Do good and be generous. To be rich in good works describes further this call to do good, And then to share and be ready to share just describes further this call to be generous. And I love the fact that that Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, he says, Timothy, God wants you to be rich, right? And we're like, yay, that's cool. Load up the bank account. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Rich in good works. Rich in good works. You see, the first thing that God wants from the rich, from you, church, is not your money. The first thing God wants from you is not your money, it's your heart. It's your life. It's your service. God wants for you and I to become the kind of people who understands that true riches are not found in the having, but in the giving, okay? To be a rich person, to be a wealthy person is not in your possessions and in your collections. No, it's in your ability to do good to serve, and to give of yourself. What is better, church? What is better, to pay someone to feed the hungry and care for the sick, or to serve them and dress their wounds yourself? Okay, which is more beautiful? Which better reflects the gospel, to be a check writer or a servant? Okay, to be a check writer or be a servant? The answer is that we should be willing to do both. The answer is that we should be willing to do both. There are some who love to serve, but hate to give. Okay, Love to serve, 
but hate to give. And there are others who don't mind writing checks because that is just so much easier. But if you say, you want me to give up what? A Saturday morning? A Sunday afternoon to feed the poor? To wash dishes? Right? To care for the homeless? I'm a little too busy for that. I'm a little too busy for that. But I will write a check. Now, why is financial generosity important then? Okay. The first is this call. God wants us to be servants before givers, right? But the second part is, yes, he also wants us to be generous and ready and willing and able to share. Why is financial generosity important? It's important for three quick reasons. Three quick reasons. You're like, oh, man, three and three. Anyways, uh, for the note takers, it's really crazy. Three quick reasons. Okay. First, it reflects the lordship of Jesus. And we've already talked about this. If the word of God commands it, are you willing to submit and obey? Okay. If God says, be generous with your earthly financial resources, if you say no, then Jesus is not your Lord. He is not Lord over your finances. Okay. We should say yes and amen. We should think about it. We should pray over it and we should obey. Okay, the first reason why we should be generous is it reflects the lordship of Christ. Second, it reflects our stewardship. If you won't be generous after God has commanded it, most likely it's because you don't want to give away your money. You see your money as your money rather than God's money, rather than something that God has entrusted unto you. See, if you understand finances if you understand your role and calling is to be a steward, then you need to use it as God commanded. Uh, back when I was younger and a child, my dad would always give me a crisp $1 bill on Sundays. And the purpose was very clear. When the offering basket came around, I was supposed to put that $1 bill in the basket. That wasn't my money. I had not earned it. I didn't do any chores. I didn't work for it. I received it from my father, and it had a clear purpose. It just went through my hands into the offering plates. There were some Sundays it didn't make it into <laughs> the offering plate, right? That's not stewardship. That's actually theft. That's actually theft, right? If you uh, have experienced uh, trading on the stock market, and uh, I know that most of us use like E-Trade or something like that online, but if you had a stockbroker and you gave him part of your finances and says, I want you to put this money into a tech company, and they do not obey you, and rather they say, I think that it would rather be better spent um, on the American automobile industry. And if that, I mean, just, just that alone, that stockbroker is a steward. That money is not his. You, it, it's your money and you have directed it for a purpose. And the moment the stockbroker says, no, I will not do with your money what you've asked me to do. I'm gonna do something else. That's not just a mistake. That's a crime. That's stealing. It's not stewardship. So church, if God has called us to be stewards and he's given us all that we have and he says, yes, use it for your enjoyment, for your flourishing, but some of it, use it for generosity. Give to the poor. Support missions, right? Be 
able to share what you have with others. If you understand that it is God's and he has authority and you are a steward, we should say amen, yes, Lord. The tragedy is we don't. Church, you and I, we are stewards, not owners. Lastly, it reflects the gospel. Why should we be generous with what we have? It reflects the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is what Paul writes. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Paul was specifically in chapter 8, he's talking about money. And he's talking to the Corinthians and he's encouraging them to give and to support missionaries, and to support poor Christians, and churches who are struggling and suffering all throughout the area. And he says that your generosity, your giving, your financial sacrifices and contributions, it all reflects the gospel. To remember Jesus Christ, who gave up the comforts and the glories and the riches of heaven to come down on earth, take the lowly, form of a man, to walk among us, to become poor so that you and I might become rich, so that you and I might become sons and daughters of God, so that you and I might become citizens in his kingdom, that you and I might receive from Jesus an inheritance that is incorruptible. If we understand the work of Jesus Christ, and the riches that he bestows upon us that flow from Calvary's cross, Christians, we should be the most generous of all people because we have received so much, not by our works or worth, but by grace alone. Reflecting on this verse, Phil Riken, he writes this, the rich became poor so that the poor might become rich. Those who have become rich by the grace of God must therefore be willing to enrich others. Church, we have an opportunity to reflect the gospel to our communities and to the world by enriching others. And the reality is this, it is gonna come at cost. It is gonna come at cost. If you are generous and and are willing to give away some of your possessions, that means you do not have all of your possessions that you're, you will see it in your bank account, right? Maybe you will not be able to buy that trinket or go on that luxury vacation, or maybe you have to tighten the belt and, and re-budget certain things. There will be a cost. But the joy, the benefit, the treasure far surpasses what earthly costs you and I might incur. So this leads us to our last point, the way to true wealth. The way to true wealth. Verse 19. Thus, right, when we are generous and are able to share with others, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The Bible promises this. The Bible promises that when earthly treasure is given away, In the name of Jesus, it is exchanged for heavenly treasure. Okay, that's a promise. That when you are giving away to the poor, 
when you are contributing to the needs and meeting the needs of the destitute and less fortunate, it is not a waste. It is not a waste. I know that there are times when you might give money to a homeless person and you might be cynical and be like, I don't know what that person's gonna use that money for. Or you give to a global agency, be like, I don't know if that money's gonna actually make it to Africa or South America and really feed the poor. It might just be going to like pat some CEO's wallet, right? And we could be cynical and pessimistic about that. The promise is this. There's always a heavenly reward. When you give away earthly treasure, In the name of Jesus, there is a heavenly treasure awaiting you. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. We're going to have to go to heaven and find out, right? We're going to have to go to heaven and find out. But that is the promise. And I think that that needs to motivate our giving. Not, hey, um, how many cents to the dollar are you going to actually give to the poor? Or what are you going to do with this money if I actually give it to you? As if we're like earthly investors, right? I just want us to do it because of Christ and the gospel. Do it because we believe in heaven and the kingdom to come and all of the joys and blessings that are promised to us. Not because we're wanting to see an earthly return on an earthly investment. You give it away in the name of Jesus. Um, I heard this story from a pastor who was quoting another pastor. So this is kind of like secondhand. And I'm sure, like all the pastor stories, they all kind of like rotate around. And so if you've heard this one, yeah, it wasn't an original. Um, There's a story of a lumberjack and he was assigned to cut down a whole grove of trees. That's what lumberjacks do. And he looked up at the first tree he was going to cut and he saw a mother bird starting to make a nest in one of the trees. And he knew that If this mother bird makes the nest and lays her eggs and this tree gets chopped down, the eggs are going to die. And so out of concern, right, and thoughtfulness and love, he turns the axe around to the dull part and he starts tapping the tree to make noise and making it shake and vibrate. And the mother bird is getting so annoyed. Finally, she flies away. All right, she flies away and goes to the next tree. And starts making her nest there. And he's just like, oh my God, here we go. And so he follows her again. Starts tapping the tree. Making noise and bothering her so that she will leave. And tree after tree, he just keeps following her, hoping that when eventually she will get the point. Well, finally, finally she flew up into a rock. And she made her nest there. Made her nest there and the lumberjack went back to his work. Started cutting down the grove of trees. What's the point? The point is this, every tree in this world is coming down. Every tree in this world is coming down. And God loves you so much, he's willing to bother you. He's willing to wreck you. He's willing to redirect you out of these worldly trees that are falling down so that you would go to the rock. You would realize that there is no safe place in this world besides the rock that is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, build your nest in the rock. That is the calling. It is no waste to give to the Lord. It is no waste to be generous. It is no waste to trust him with all that we have, not just spiritually, but physically as well. Uh, This Christmas and holiday season, we have opportunities to give. I love our church not only for our community, but our love and concern for the local community. We want to be a church, not just in Sunland, 
We want to be a church for Sunland. So we partner with various ministries. Uh, one of them is a ministry called Chapel of the Hills, and that's actually a local church. And technically, it's called Making It Into Happen, but um, it, it's kind of confusing. So we just call it by the church name, Chapel of the Hills. And this Christmas, okay, uh, the director, Patty, uh, she wanted to start a program where we would adopt the homeless and less fortunate children in our community. We are inviting all of our small groups to participate. We've signed up for about 15 children here in Sunland uh, that are homeless and less fortunate, and it's going to cost about $150, $150, so a small group, you guys can all chip in together, and making it happen in Chapel of the Hills, they're going to um, just bless these kids, give them ch- uh, Christmas gifts that, that their parents ordinarily wouldn't be able to provide for them, and, and I love the fact that this is local. This is in our city. This is in our community. This is on Foothill Boulevard and Sunland Boulevard, and we can have a presence here. That's one opportunity that we have. There are many others, right? This Christmas season, would you consider and seek out ways for you to practice generosity to those who need it with all that you're able to do? Let's reflect Christ. Let's do all of this out of stewardship and to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because you, through Jesus Christ, took us in our poor, in our destitution. Lord, you, you, you received us and you came to us and you loved us. And Jesus, you who are rich, you became poor for us. We thank you again for the gospel message. And I pray that right now, God, that you would fill our hearts with genuine joy and delight and gratitude. On this Thanksgiving Sunday, God, would we give thanks for who you are and all that you have done. And as your love pours into our hearts, may that overflow onto one another, onto the city, and to the ends of this earth. God, we thank you for reminding us that we are not owners, but we are stewards, stewards of your kingdom, stewards of your resources. Many of us have never experienced true biblical stewardship. Would you help us to taste and see that it is good? Help us to just experience a moment, a glimmer of what it means to to have Jesus as our real king, not as a fictional puppet king, but a true authority, a true ruler who is so benevolent and tender and yet authoritative and mighty. God, we want you to rule and reign over us. And may that produce in us joy, gratitude, and glory for your name. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.